I have no doubt that even though he's only had three Christmases now, we have bought Abel the best Christmas present we will ever buy him. Even if he gets a super ninja awesome ray gun at age 10, even if he gets a car at age 16, whatever else happens, there is no doubt in my mind that Abel has already been given the best gift we will ever give him. And it's the Jesus Storybook Bible. I love this book. For some of you, you might want to read it. Like, but I'm just kidding. Um, we, we had a, like a little baby Bible for him that we read a couple times, but he already you could tell he was outgrowing it. And as a three-year-old, he loves this book. Like he reads it all the time, reads it all the time by himself, and he loves to look at the pictures. So if you have some, a kid who's like between three and probably eight or nine, this is the Bible that I would say get for that kid. It is it is awesome. And Abel loves to just scroll through it. And now he's read through it so many times that he can tell us about some of his favorite stories. Like he loves the story of Moses and he loves, he loves the story of Zacchaeus and he, he likes the, the story of David and Goliath. And, and all of these stories he loves to talk about all the time. But if you were to ask him most of the time what his favorite story was, what the story is he asks to read the most is the story of Jesus on the cross. And it's not because he's like this weird, morbid kid, but it's because there's just something in him that already gets the story. And so one night we were reading, we were reading the, the story, we were getting ready to, get, to, get, to go to bed, and Winnie was downstairs with Cohen, and I said, buddy, let's read the Bible tonight, you know, let's read together. And I said, I want to read to you the story before Jesus on the cross. And I said, it happens the day before. And so we opened the Jesus Storybook Bible to this event that happens on Thursday. You see, there's this, there's this thing that happens in, in the story of Jesus' life in the four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They devote a decent amount of their, of their attention to the three years of Jesus' ministry, but all four of them heavily, heavily, heavily talk about the last week of Jesus on earth before the crucifixion, before Jesus on the cross. And so together for the last few weeks, we've been studying the 168 hours, the last week of Jesus' life. We talked about on Sunday, he came into Jerusalem at a time when most of the world was in Jerusalem, millions of people there, and he entered in on a donkey, and it was the triumphal entry, and people were shouting, our Savior is here. And then last week, we talked about how on Monday, he went to the temple, and he destroyed some of the people in the temple because they were trying to create a barrier between them and God. On Tuesday and Wednesday, there's a lot of teaching and a lot of important, almost last-minute notes that Jesus is giving his disciples and the people who hear him. But there's, there's no key events that happen on Tuesday and Wednesday. <clears throat> but when you get to Thursday, things start to get really heavy. I told you that there were millions of people in Jerusalem, and they were in Jerusalem because the Israelite custom was that on the week of Passover, they were to make a journey themselves to Jerusalem. But Jesus is making this journey not in honor of Passover, but because he knows what's about to take place. Jesus knows that his purpose is to go to, to Jerusalem to eventually be arrested and go to the cross. And so Thursday night comes, and Thursday night that year, that week, is when they're going to celebrate Passover. 
And Jesus already knows that Judas has agreed to turn him into the temple guard. So Judas is waiting for an opportunity to arrest Jesus at the right moment. Judas is one of his 12 disciples, and Jesus wants to spend these moments with his disciples, but he's not ready to be arrested yet. And so he sets this plan in motion, and when you think about it and dive deep into it, it's this really intricate chess game that Jesus is playing where enough people know enough things to do what they need to do without letting Judas know so that he doesn't get arrested until the moment he's prepared to be arrested. And so it's because of all of this that's happening that the, the plans that they have made, that Jesus and his 12 disciples have made for Passover, are sort of vague, But then all of a sudden, it all comes together Thursday night, and they're all there at the table sharing Passover. And as many times as I read this story, it never fails to blow my mind that there are 13 people around this table. There's Jesus, and then there's 12 disciples, one of whom has already betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, which isn't very much money in their day or our day, one of whom is going to publicly deny and curse him three times within the next 24 hours. The other 10 don't get any credit, but they just deserve just as much blame because when Jesus is arrested, they all vanish. But Jesus is here in this moment sharing in some of his last moments with these disciples. And what's so interesting is what happens in those last moments. And so if you open your Bible to John chapter 13, you kind of get a glimpse into this last meal that they share together. It says it was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Catch this. He knows what they're all about to do and he still chooses to love them. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And so the meal starts, and they're all gathered around the table. But when you get this picture of these 13 guys at the table, don't think of a table like this, a high table with chairs. Typically, especially in the situation they were in, there wouldn't have been a table like we know. It would have been a mat that someone rolled out on the ground. So in order for them to eat, what they probably, what they would have done is they would have laid down on the floor and rested their head on an elbow like this and used the other hand to eat. The, way, the weird part about this is the way you lay and the way you situate, depending on the size of the room and the, and the length of the table and those sorts of things, you may very well, and this sounds disgusting, I know, you may very well end up with your feet really close to someone else's face. And so... In 2006, 17, that's gross, right? Like, even if you're like a, I love flip-flops and you get pedicures and you do all that, like, eating next to someone's feet is kind of gross. But imagine 2,000 years ago when there were no shoes and there was no pavement, so everyone's walking on dirt roads, and you're not only walking on dirt roads, you're walking on dirt roads behind animals, right? And like, so feet are filthy, nasty, nasty, disgusting, and so in order to prevent, you know, nausea, the one of the things that happened at almost every meal was the servant of the house, the lowest of the servants, would be assigned to wash your feet before the meal. And it was always assigned to the lowest servant because it was the worst job. 
It was the filthiest, most disgusting job. And so as the disciples prepare for the Passover meal and they're getting started, Luke 22, which is another version of this same story, tells us that the disciples are having a debate. And they're having a debate about who's the greatest. But the debate about who's the greatest isn't because they want the most credit. It's because they want to figure out who's the least because they're the one who's going to have to wash the feet of everyone else. Right? This is the first century version of, okay, one, two, three, not it. Right? Like, like that's, this is what they're doing is they're trying to figure out who gets the job of the lowest of the low. And when you and I read this story, we have the benefit of hindsight and the benefit of, of, of knowing. And we read this story and we think, golly, those disciples really missed the point. But then I think, like, if I'm honest with myself, I'm probably right there in the debate. If I'm, if I'm sitting around that table, not because I think I'm the greatest, but because I don't want to be the one washing feet. It's not because I think I'm amazing. It's because I think I'm just a little better than somebody else, and that person should probably be the one to wash feet. Or maybe you do think that you're, you're the best and you're above it, and you would do what, what normal people would do, which is look out for number one and fight for yourself to not have to do the thing that no one wants to do. Maybe, though, you wouldn't, you wouldn't exaggerate your accomplishments and puff out your chest. Maybe you would do that thing that some of us do where we feign humility at times, where we just sit around the table and everyone's talking and we're hoping that someone else is going to say, it doesn't have to be them. Oh, no, 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 really, really. But you, like, you're eating it up inside, right? Nope, just me? I'm the only one? Cool. <laughs> like, you know, but at some point, every person around the table is listening and going, I just, I don't have to be the best. I just don't want to be the lowest. I don't want to be the one. Regardless of how this conversation takes place, what matters most is that no one picks up the towel. And no one stops to say, I'll just do it. And I think there are even some people, I, I, don't, I, won't, I won't hesitate, I won't throw everybody under the bus here. But I think there are some people who legitimately might do it just because that's the kind of heart they have. But I also think there's a lot of people who would probably step up to do it and they'd say, hey, grab my phone. Will you take a picture of this so I can post it on Facebook later? This is my best side, right? Like, and then there's some people who, will, who would take up the towel and they'd be the kind of person to like do one person's foot and the other, the other one person's feet, you know, English, one person's feet, and they're hoping the whole time that somebody's going to step up and say, no, no, I'll do it. But none of that seems to happen. And Jesus, Jesus sees this, and Jesus knows this already. And I, I have no problem saying that this breaks Jesus' heart. Because for three years now, Jesus has taught his disciples and has taught these people, your objective on this earth is to serve. And he's taught over and over again that if you're going to follow Jesus, that your heart is focused first and foremost on serving, on sacrificing. And I started to think more and more this week about, about what that really looks like. Like for us as a people to have a heart that is focused on service and sacrifice above everything else. 
to have the kind of heart that doesn't participate in the argument but just gets up and hope no one notices and doesn't want anyone to take a picture and doesn't want anyone's credit but just puts the towel around our waist and starts washing feet. I was so humbled this week when I read the story of Muhammad Bazik. Muhammad Bazik is a Muslim man who lives in Los Angeles, but he has a very special role that he plays in life. He's a foster parent, but only foster parents terminally ill children. Since 2010, seven years now, 10 to 11, I think it's 11 kids have died in Bazik's care. And there's this moment as I'm reading this article and thinking about how this applies to this sermon, I'm thinking, Muhammad Bazik is a Muslim. He doesn't even know the Jesus that I know. He doesn't even know the truth about who Jesus is and about, and about the God that we serve. And this guy lives out what Jesus has called us to live better than I do. And I felt so guilty and so convicted because my heart would be like, well, I can't do that because I just can't handle it. But he said at the end of the article, he said, I just believe that everyone should help everyone. And I thought, that's the whole point of all of this. Is that Jesus wants us to serve. And he doesn't just say, do as I say. He models it. And so in verse 3, in John chapter 13, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. I don't know the volume level of the debate. It could have been a loud shouting match because you get a group of guys together and a lot of times the volume starts to rise, right? You know, like, especially when they're debating and arguing like that, it's going to get a little loud. It's going to get a little intense. There's probably going to be some name-calling and some accusations. Regardless, though, if they were yelling and screaming and shouting, or if they were doing that thing that I kind of think they were doing, which is talking about it under their breath, like, Simon, it's your turn. You're, you're, you know, and like John's going, you're the one who said such and such, and it's your, you know, and they're all going back and forth, trying not to let Jesus know that they're arguing about it, but hoping that somebody will just step up and do it because somebody's got to do it or we're going to get in trouble. You know, like, you know how this goes, right? Either way, whatever the volume is of the debate, the moment Jesus stands up and goes to the corner and takes off his outer clothes and wraps the towel around his waist, the whole room just falls silent. And you can imagine the feeling that they each have in the pit of their stomach and the shame that they feel because they know amongst the 13 of them there's some debate and there's some room to say that, that he's better and he's better and, and they might be better and stronger and more powerful or whatever but there's no debate as to number one because number one is Jesus they've seen him heal the sick they've seen him cure the blind they've seen him raise the dead they know he's number one but he doesn't participate in the debate. He just walks over and puts the towel around his waist. So as the room just falls deathly silent, 
After that, he poured the water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And there's this moment in time when 12 grown men, absolutely, I have no doubt, just start streaming tears down their face. Because the man who spoke them into existence, the creator who oversaw the beginnings of the universe, who came to earth, who had all of these powers and all of these abilities, all of those things is the one who was willing to humble himself when they thought they were too important to humble themselves. I mean, you can imagine being served in such a humbling, intimate way, couldn't you? I mean, we're not just talking about somebody bringing you your food at the restaurant or somebody clearing your dish for you. We're not just talking about somebody picking up the trash after you. We're talking about taking the most disgusting, filthy part of who you are and willingly soaking it and wrapping the towel around it and scrubbing it clean, not just for the sake of not letting you be embarrassed, but for the sake of cleaning the germs and the stink and the filth off of you. How humbling of a moment this must be. The silence is broken, though, by Peter. And if you read many of the stories from Jesus, you know that Peter's always the guy who breaks the silence. Like, he's always the guy who speaks up and says what everyone was thinking or wishes no one would say. Like, that's always who Peter is. And and so Jesus comes around the table to Simon Peter, who says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? which I've always kind of thought was a pretty dumb question. <laughs> like, you just washed eight or nine other guys' feet, dude. It's your turn. Feets. Is that a word? I don't know. Anyways, so Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. And no, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And I laugh because it's kind of like this funny moment in the story when Peter is just oblivious to what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus isn't giving them a bath. Jesus isn't making sure that their feet are clean so that they don't smell. Jesus is showing them something much bigger. By washing the feet of these nasty, gnarly men, Jesus is showing them that he's here to serve. Jesus is showing these 12 disciples, the one who betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, the one who denies and curses him in public, and the 10 who run away in his biggest hour of need, he's showing all of them that he will still put his towel around his waist and serve and love. Because by washing their feet, he's showing them that he's here to serve. And so we closed the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it was still just me and Abel, and I was kind of distracted. It had been a long day, you know, and, and different things threw in through my mind. And so we're laying there on his bed, and, and I grabbed my phone, and I just started playing on my phone, doing whatever. And, and I heard Abel get up, because it wasn't, Whitney was still downstairs, and so it wasn't time for bed yet. And he, he goes out into the kitchen, and I heard him rummaging around, but I just was playing on my phone, looking at whatever, doing whatever I normally do on my phone, and 
couple, couple of seconds go by, and I don't think much of it. You know, I still hear him rummaging around and doing something. And then I hear him come back into his hallway, and he turns the water on in his sink. And I've had a not very good day. And I say, Abel, you know you can't run water without mom and dad. And he turns it off. He says, sorry, dad. And he comes down off of his stool, and I hear him take a couple steps into his room. And so I look up from my phone, and there in the doorway stands my three-year-old with his Ninja Turtles cup of water and a blue dish towel. And I said, what are you doing, bud? And he said, Daddy, I want to be Jesus and wash your feet. And he said, so you be Peter. And so he walked across the room, and I really randomly got really dusty in the room all of a sudden. I don't know. It was like dust storms and onions and all kinds of stuff. And he dabbed the towel with the water, and he just kind of washed my feet. And they weren't dirty. I, I had showered that week, and, um, you know, and, and as soon as he was done, I, I fell down on the floor, and I, and I gave him a big hug, and I said, now, buddy, I, I'm going to wash yours. But it's in that moment that I was thinking about being his dad. And I was thinking about how I have no doubt that more than once that day I probably had lost my temper. And I have no doubt that more than once that day I probably had thought, you just need to be quiet for a minute. And I thought about all of the ways that I've probably fallen short as his dad in the last three years. But none of that mattered. Because he came to this moment to serve. And so as I'm washing his feet, it's this humbling reminder to me that no matter what he does, no matter how many times he doesn't put his toys away when we ask, no matter how many times he makes us watch Ninja Turtles over and over again, no matter how much he does, whatever he does, I will love him and serve him forever. And so then a couple minutes later, we hear Whitney coming up the stairs. And he looks at me and says, Daddy, can I wash Mommy's feet too? And I have to tell you, because he's my kid, like, this story can't end perfectly. Um, so he puts on his favorite Ninja Turtles mask, and he ends up washing Whitney's feet. <laughs> like, the sweet part of the story would be like, you know, he came in and said this, but he had the Ninja Turtles mask on, so it kind of ruins the whole thing. But Whitney felt the same thing in that moment. And so then together, the three of us, we laid on his bed and we turned the page. And we read the story of Jesus on the cross. And he said the same thing that he said a hundred times now, because every time we read it, I make sure to ask this question. I say, buddy, why did Jesus go to the cross? And he says, because he loves us, daddy. I said, buddy, do you know why Jesus washed Peter's feet? And he said, because he loved him. And he looked at me and he said, Daddy, I washed your feet because they were stinky. <laughs> and he said, Mommy, I washed your feet because I love you. <laughs> and I'll never forget that moment. And as long as I live and as long as I preach, when I tell the story, I will tell the story of the time that my three-year-old came back into the room with some water and a towel.
Because in that moment, he understood why Jesus came. And for the disciples in that moment, they didn't get it quite yet. They didn't put two and two together and see what the feet meant and when you combine the feet with, the, with, the, what, with what happened next because what happens next is they go through the Passover meal and the Passover meal is this very strict meal. There's, there's an order you eat and there's an order you drink and there's, you eat this and you say this, you drink this and you say this and you eat this and you say this and then all of a sudden at the end of the meal, Jesus has already broken this tradition by washing their feet and they're having the Passover meal and just seemingly from nowhere, out comes one more cup and one more piece of bread. And Jesus looks at the disciples and says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And to them, it's still a mystery. But he knows what's about to happen. Judas leaves and he goes to be with the temple guard because they know that next they're going to the garden. And it's there in the garden while Jesus is praying that the temple guard comes and they arrest Jesus. And they put on a sham of a trial that night with falsified evidence and fake witnesses and all kinds of crazy stuff. And they convict him. And that morning they tie him to a post and they beat him with a whip 39 times. And then they take that same post and they put it on his back and they force him to carry it through town to a place they call Golgotha, the place of the skull. And when he gets to the top of the hill, they nail his hands and his feet to that same post. And it's there on the cross that the disciples see all of it come together. That he is there to serve us. He is there because he loves us. And despite the fact that Tana ran away, despite the fact that Peter had violently denied him and that Judas had betrayed him, he still went to the cross for them because he still went to the cross for you and for me. He went to the cross to clean our dirty feet. You see, our hearts were filled with filth, with sin, with shame. But that moment on the cross, he cleansed our hearts and made us new. Do this in remembrance of him.